This is Ron Stockton. Earlier today, on November 21st, 2021, we officially decommissioned our church. Decommissioning is a Presbyterian word for closing a building. In the Presbyterian tradition, a church building is just a building until it is dedicated. And when the building is decommissioned, it ceases to be a church. It looks like a church, but once again, it is just a building. However, by a quirk of Presbyterian governance, we are still a congregation, but a congregation without a building. We have to think that through. Once I was in England in the midst of writing a book on Presbyterian politics, I wanted to talk to a local Church of Scotland minister in Brighton, where such people are very rare. We set up an appointment for Sunday afternoon. When I arrived, he gave his abject apologies. I would love to talk to you, but I have to go off to save a church from closure. I agree. That was far more important than talking to an American professor about Presbyterian politics. Our congregation had been struggling with numbers for some time. Back in the 1990s, the session, the church governing body, did a study and anticipated a shutdown date within five years. And yet there it was, 20 or 25 years later, still functioning. It probably would have closed within a few years anyway, but the floods that hit Dearborn in mid-2021 were the final blow. Those floods, one after another, not only did water damage, but exposed asbestos and black mold and other problems so serious and dangerous to health that the Presbytery, the regional governance body that oversees local congregations, sealed the building, changed the locks, and prohibited anyone from going in without specific authorization. In the end, they condemned the building. It will probably be demolished within a few months. Now we who are left, typically 30 or so people on Sunday morning, have to decide what comes next. This has been, and will not be, an easy conversation. But that is not the purpose of this podcast. This is a eulogy of sorts. I want to tell you about this congregation and its amazing history. Churches are institutions, and institutions are like people. They have a lifespan. The question is not whether they will someday fade, but what they will do with the time when they are strong. My congregation, the one in this podcast, was Littlefield Avenue Presbyterian Church in the aviation neighborhood of Northeast Dearborn. We just called it Littlefield. It was started 91 years ago when the neighborhood was almost all Christian. It was and is a special neighborhood with elegant houses, all brick, all custom, as we like to say. I'm pleased to say that I live here. The neighborhood in the 1930s was a mix of ethnic groups, Irish, Italian, Polish. All of those were Catholic, of course, and the beautiful St. Alphonsus Church presides over the main entrance to the neighborhood. Until a while ago, the St. Al's School was thriving. Now it is closed. But in those early days, there was also a significant Protestant population. When this church was created in 1930, many people would just walk to services, the way Jane and I have always done. The church did not even have a parking lot. At its peak, the congregation had a thousand members. It has a beautiful sanctuary filled with stained glass. There's a nice balcony where the choir would sit, according to those who remember those days. There was a strong youth group and an extensive auxiliary building for educational and social gatherings. 
the leadership was very stable over time, with the ministers having long popular tenures. Jane and I started attending in 1993. The legendary pastor, Harry Geisinger, had retired, but was still in the congregation, so we got to know him and his wonderful wife, Elizabeth. Del Meester was the pastor at the time. He and Linda were lovely people, and he welcomed us very graciously. At that point, the congregation had dwindled to 150 members. It was demographically challenged, as people would put it, but it was still strong in so many ways. The history of the church changed in the 1970s when the congregation gave itself a new mission. Durban had been experiencing a significant number of Arab refugees coming into the country. There was an old Arab population whose origins were earlier in the century, people who came to work in the factories, especially Dearborn's giant Ford Rouge plant. That would have been the 1920s and 1930s. Those, those earlier generations were looking for a better life. One of the women in our neighborhood was a perfect example of this pattern. She told her kids, I did not change countries and move 7,000 miles so you could goof off in school. I want you home within 15 minutes of when the school ends and you will do your homework. By the 1970s, those earlier populations fitted into Durban society quite well. But the Lebanese Civil War of 1975 and 1976 produced a wave of refugees. And the Israeli invasion of the South in 1978 produced even more. Then came the brutal Israeli invasion of 1982. That occupation lasted for 18 years and produced even more refugees. These people were very different from those who came before. Earlier generations were looking for a better life. The new waves of Arabs were fleeing massacres and bombings in foreign armies. They were traumatized and bitter. They were dreaming of the time when the forces of evil would be vanquished and they could return to their homelands. And the rise, of, the rise in this population was rapid. Some numbers from the Durban school system may illustrate the pattern. In 1976 to 77, there were 218 children in bilingual programs. Those were many languages, not just Arabic. By 1980 to 81, there were 1,400. Not only did this require significant shifts in school budgets, but many of those kids were suffering PTSD from living through violence. There was also serious resistance in Dearborn to this influx. Anytime there's a rapid influx of people, there are tensions. So Dearborn was not unique in that regard. But the issue was real and needed to be addressed. And it began to take a political dimension. Back in the 1970s, Mayor Hubbard had tried to level the mostly Arab neighborhood in Dearborn's South End. And in the 1980s, Mayor Guido had campaigned on promising to address the Arab problem. And yet, they were here in Dearborn. Many had left their possessions behind and were suddenly impoverished. They were disorganized and had no meaningful organization or leadership to represent them or speak for them or to protect them. It was a bad situation. This may be hard for many local people to believe when they look at the strong cohesive leadership and organizational structure that we see today. But that transformation did not come about out of the blue. It took serious efforts to produce such a situation. And that is where Littlefield Presbyterian Church came in. 
In the mid-1970s, the session, under the leadership of Reverend Geisinger, submitted a major proposal to the National Church, the General Assembly. There was a development of people's program that had grant money available. At the time, Access, the large Arab American organization that is so influential and successful today, was close to a startup. It was the brainchild of an amazing woman, Alia Hassan, who had the whole organization in a couple of boxes in her spare room. Littlefield got a grant of $50,000 to support Access by allowing them to hire a full-time organizer. That organizer was Ishmael Ahmed, a legendary person for, for those who are familiar with this community. Today, $50,000 did not sound like a lot of money, but back in those days, it was quite a bit and made a difference. One of the founding leaders of Access explained why it was so important. Let me quote him. That grant was essential. Every time we went to a corporation or a government agency to ask for a startup grant or to propose a contract to provide services for the community, we were rejected. They were worried that we were leftist. Many of our board members were active in opposing the Vietnam War and in speaking up for Palestinian rights. We met with the governor and he told us quite bluntly, the report on your politics is not good. I can't support you. The Presbyterians gave us money without making political demands. We used it to hire a full-time director and that transformed the organization. We decided to abandon all political positions. Some people did not like that but it worked very well for the community. The Presbyterians made a difference in our success. In its regular cycle of worship, this congregation did what all congregations do. We studied the Bible, we prayed, we had sermons that made us think. We bid farewell to the dead, welcomed newborns, and encouraged the ill. We educated the youth and had astonishingly good music that lifted our spirits. We studied and discussed serious issues of public and moral concern. The new mission, the external mission, as they defined it, would be to build up the Arab community, to facilitate their integration into American society, and to support them in resisting anti-Arab and anti-Muslim reactions within the existing population. They made it clear that they were not interested in converting Muslims to Christianity. We do not want to frighten people off, with suspicion of ulterior motives. The congregation also had many activities of its own. We had programs on racial justice, local politics, gay rights, anti-Semitism, Palestinian rights, foreign policy, and the role of Iran. But the thing that makes me feel good about Littlefield is its outreach to the Arab community. We look on something, we took on something we knew would not strengthen our membership and yet it addressed a need in the community that was not being addressed elsewhere. Christian people were extending the hand of friendship to Muslims without expecting return. I'm extremely proud of that. Maybe we've done our job. The Arab community has a footing, and we have done our thing. As Littlefield closes, I'm sad but not brokenhearted. It has lived its faith in its location, and I feel good about that. Things don't go on in perpetuity. But that was not the end of Presbyterian involvement. The Presbytery, the regional governance body, agreed to hire a full-time outreach person to work with the Arab community. The person hired was Reverend Bill Gepford. 
Bill was an experienced educational missionary who had lived in Lebanon and Hong Kong. The presbytery would pay 80% of his salary and the congregation would pay the rest. Bill was a dynamo. He was like the Energizer Bunny. He just kept going and going. Almost every Sunday he was speaking somewhere, helping people understand the makeup of the Arab community, helping them understand Islam, helping them understand the malevolent impact of hostile stereotyping. Bill was also active in setting up programs. He brought in speakers such as Naeem Atik, the Palestinian minister who wrote on liberation theology, Reverend Ben Weir, who had been a hostage in Lebanon, and the Israeli civil rights attorney, Leah Samel, who said, as she met with us, I have never won a single case. There were also frequent panels on Middle East issues, the Palestinians, Islam, Iran. Very often these events drew attendance from the wider community. They also drew attention from people seeking a congregation that seemed to be doing something beyond what congregations do. And when the Presbytery ran out of money and Bill retired, he continued to appear in the office every day and to speak to congregations and public groups as often as possible. In 1999, the congregation hired a new minister. Her name was Reverend Fran Hayes. This was our first female minister. There's a long tradition in the congregation of high-achieving women. Barbara Gepford and Carol Hilkema and Jean Lennox were among those who had played important roles in the denomination, often at the national level. But Reverend Hayes was new. She wanted to bring in some new thinking and some new styles. Clapping hands may sound like a modest change, but for Presbyterians, God's frozen people, it was a big deal. Fran tried to help the congregation think about marginalized populations. Racial injustice was an important theme, as was the role of gay Christians. She would sometimes say, the church is a hospital for the wounded. And would note that babies are baptized just after birth, well before they develop any sexual identity. She pointed out that in the Presbyterian tradition, the baptism of an infant involves a commitment of the congregation to nurture the child. There was a commitment that had to be honored. These were thoughts that were new to some of us. She also tried to help us think about Palestinians in our midst. When the congregation realized that the traditional Advent scripture readings and prayers leading up to Christmas, with their references to liberating Israel, were creating distress for two Palestinian families, she entered a short but powerful note into the congregational bulletin. Presbyterians are not literalists, but seek the meaning of a text. She noted that these passages had to do with liberation, and today the Palestinians are needing liberation. This insertion had a double impact, making some of some people feel more welcome, but also making others more aware of the complexities of those phrases that we often inherit and take for granted. The entry referred to the two advents of Christ, his birth and his anticipated return. It also referred to that wonderful song from Handel's Messiah. Come, O come, Emmanuel, to ransom captive Israel. Sorry for my bad singing. Here's the text. As we live expectantly in this time between the two advents of Christ, we become increasingly aware that, as the people of Israel lived in anguished longing for delivery during the times of oppression, our Palestinian brothers and sisters do now. 
When we sing Advent hymns with phrases like ransom captive Israel, we encourage you to substitute Palestine, Palestine if you feel moved to do so in solidarity with those who are oppressed today. Some of these developments were compatible with my thinking. I'm not a doctrinal Christian. A statement of faith is not enough for me. There needs to be some element of religion that helps us engage the world, that strengthens our community, or makes the world a better place, if only in some small way. The thing that makes me feel good about Littlefield Church has always been its public mission. In reaching out to the Arab community, we took on something we knew would not grow our membership. And yet it addressed a need in the community that was not being addressed elsewhere. Christians were extending the hand of friendship to Muslims. Today, few in the Arab or Muslim community would even be aware of the contribution of this congregation to their success. That does not matter to me. The goal was not to be thanked. We did something good, and I'm extremely proud of that. The Arab community has a footing, and we have done our thing. There is a saying in gravestone research that what is important is not the birth and death date, but the dash that separates the two. What did you do with your dash? Littlefield Church is now gone. I'm sad, but not brokenhearted. It lived its faith in its location, and I feel good about that. In 1991, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church recognized these activities and gave the congregation an award for the outstanding Presbyterian congregation in the country. That was wonderful. But there was much more. We were active in Muslim-Christian dialogue and Christian-Jewish dialogue. Bill Gepford helped create the Thanksgiving event interfaith event. And after September 11th, we were critical in generating discussions and interactions. Once I was at a conference and someone mentioned what had happened after September 11th, when there was anti-Islamic rhetoric and even some violence. I said that an anti-Islamic group had protested outside of a Chicago mosque for three days before the police stepped in and told them to back off. I said that if that had happened in Detroit, it would not have taken more than three hours until there would have been a phalanx of ministers standing between the mosque and the crowd. Someone said, the difference is that you knew what to do. Indeed, we did. But it did not occur because of natural genius or humanity on our part. It occurred because there had been years of preparatory work. Littlefield Church was not only was not the only factor in this success, but they were an important factor. Another example of our activities involved a unique summer program. Programmatically, the congregation realized that there were no longer enough children to have a traditional summer Bible school program, so they created what they called Peace Camp. This was a three-day event for neighborhood children. It was non-sectarian. The focus was upon building community and working to resolve conflicts. The pinnacle of the program was when the kids would take boxes and paints and create a model community complete with houses and businesses and churches and mosques. One child even built a grand mosque in Mecca. When parents would show up on the last day, they were so happy and proud. This event went on for perhaps a decade until the pandemic closed it down. We did things I have never seen in any other congregation. We had visiting religious leaders from other faiths. Imam Kazwini spoke from our pulpit and even lit the Christmas candle. His son did the call to prayer. Imam Elahi visited 
as did Imam El Husseini. And we had Roger Scully, a Jewish cantor, blow the Jewish shofar in what is also a call to prayer. These were wonderful exchanges. A few other things are worth mentioning just in passing. We welcomed several seminary interns over the years, people who could see what our congregation is and how it functions. We used our extra space to welcome ESL, English as a Second Language, and Head Start programs. And we shared our building with a Hispanic congregation for some years before the pandemic and the floods. We were a presence in the community, a Christian voice in a way different from any other voice. As someone said back in the 90s, closing this congregation would be a loss, not only to the individuals who worship here, but to the community. If one of the other small congregations in the area closed, it would be a loss to the members, but would not have the same impact on the wider community. If we closed, it would be a loss to the community as well. It is important to our surrounding community, to our presbytery, and to Christ's church that there be a witness here at Littlefield. Just before the closing, the city of Dearborn adopted a resolution of appreciation. As the building of Littlefield Presbyterian Church becomes decommissioned as a house of worship, the mayor and the Dearborn City Council would like to recognize the great community outreach and involvement the congregation has had while located at 7560 Littlefield Boulevard. Located in the aviation neighborhood, the Littlefield Presbyterian Church building was dedicated in 1940 as a neighborhood church that congregants could walk to and was a bustling center of many families' lives in the neighborhood for decades. With the influx of refugees from the Arab world in the 1970s, Littlefield became a leader in reaching out to its new neighbors, hiring a full-time community outreach coordinator and investing in the development of Access, the organization. Littlefield has continued to focus on building strong interfaith and community relationships through housing ESL programs, conducting interfaith services, participating in the Dearborn Area Interfaith Network, offering a children's peace camp, delivering holiday meals to the community, and supporting the students and staff at McDonald Elementary School. The city of Dearborn would like to thank Littlefield Presbyterian Church for its community engagement and the many decades of service towards building a more peaceful, prosperous, and welcoming Dearborn. That was very nice and very appreciated. Once Jane and I were walking with two friends on a nice hike in the English hills, we came upon a small stone building of a congregation that was 600 years old. Small is an understatement. It was very small. It could probably hold 10 people at best. As we stood there somewhat humbled by this setting, a local woman walked up. She explained that her husband would come down every few weeks and clean up the building. He didn't get paid for this. He just did it. The local bishop was aware of the history of the church and would send someone out once a month to lead services on a Sunday afternoon. There were seldom more than a few people in attendance. As we were there, I noted a sign near the door. It asked that any visitors take a moment to reflect upon the souls who had worshipped here during the last six centuries. This, this was not just a building, it said. It was a church that served the needs of real humans with real lives and real problems. I left somewhat humbled. I felt the same way today, proud but humbled. 
If God was watching, had we listened carefully, we might have heard a small, soft voice say, good and faithful servants, well done.